Well, this morning, many of you were looking for Pastor David, but he is with uh, over 120 other men from the church out there in San Clemente for the Father-Son campout, and trust that they're enjoying their time, and Pastor David asked if I would like to preach, and I said, trembling, yes. <laughs> But join with me as I lead us in prayer. Gracious and mighty God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna begin with a riddle. What four-letter word is commonly used in our world that speaks of one's condition, one's emotion? It's often used as an idiom, an interjection, a wishful destination. At the same time, it is a topic to be avoided, dreaded. Denied repeatedly when it's discussed around family, friends, workplace, school, and society at large. The word is hell. And today, the word is often trivialized. Expressions are often used to describe something awful. You've heard these expressions. I trust you're not saying these expressions, but it was, it hurts like, You know, the rush hour traffic was, this past week work was, the school was, homework was, and you know, you can fill in the blank. The word is hell. And it's so trivialized, we say it, it's just commonly expressed. And I think of uh, one of my favorite comic strips, The Far Side. I, I enjoy the humor there, but oftentimes the artist there trivializes the topic of hell. And we can kind of smile and laugh, but the topic is really not a very pleasant topic at all. Have you heard people say, even if you've had some discussions on this matter, that if hell is where my loved one is, then I want to go there. Or I want to be there with my friends in hell and party it up. But as soon as you bring this word related to the scriptural truth of judgment or eternal destination, it raises controversy of a topic not to be discussed, for it speaks of ultimate judgment, eternal consequences, and unpleasant thoughts. And I certainly understand. I I mean, you and I can all understand. It's just a topic, hey, let's not talk about that topic. I mean, we can talk about a lot of other things, But that's one of those topics we don't want to talk about. So where does this concept, where does this concept of hell even come from? Well, open your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Matthew. We're going to read Matthew here, Matthew chapter 10. And I'm going to read a portion of this as you're turning to Matthew chapter 10. 
I'll begin actually a kind of a running start there in chapter 9 just to lend a little more context of this passage. Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Verse 1 there in chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Then he names the disciples by name. I'm going to move to verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. For if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet until you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are... For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, 
you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'll stop there. It's pretty daunting. It's pretty overwhelming just reading this passage and the context there. But the key that I'm going to focus on this morning is, is verse 28. Matthew 28 there, 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, this morning we will briefly consider the unpleasant and frightening topic of hell in order, and this is key, in order to renew our confidence in Christ who delivered us and this is key, who delivered us from this peril. But let me give, a con- again, context. It was important to read, but just let me give context here. You know, the book of Matthew is about Jesus as king. And Matthew focuses on Jesus as proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gives this commandment to his original followers, his disciples. You find there in verse 1 and 5 through 7. And originally... He gives them specific instructions. He gives them first authority, and then he, gives them, he, he commissions them to, uh, for the purpose of proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Yet they are to practice compassion, you find there in verse 8. But however, as they are commanded to go out, there are consequences that will come. And we find that from verse 16 through 39. And it's interesting to note that there's a transition of whom Jesus is addressing. Originally, he's addressing to the 12 apostles. But it does not appear that it's only applied to the 12 disciples because verse 16 onwards, you see that, that the witness is, not, is now before the Gentiles. You find that in verse 18. And in verse 23, it says that the Son of Man has not returned yet. And Jesus is for, he's really foretelling not only of the 12 disciples what they may face, but the subsequent followers of Christ these past 2,000 years. You know, Jesus says that persecution will come. You find that verses 16 through 18. That you will be hated, verse 22. And that families will divide. You find there in verse 21 and verse 34 to 37. But you know, Jesus brings a word of comfort. And he says, in the midst of these circumstances, Jesus tells us to not be anxious. Verse 19, have no fear of them. Verse 26, do not fear. Verse 28, fear not. Verse 31, why? 
because you are more value than many sparrows. You are of more value. But what I want us to consider is to carefully consider the words of Jesus once again in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I want to break this into two parts there. The first part there, the the futility of fearing man. And you find that in the first part in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body. In other words, Jesus is saying, what is man? You know, Jesus says, do not fear. And the word fear is phobia or phobia. You know, and and you know what phobia is. It's just being afraid, um, being timid, even cowardly. Um, And it's so, for all of us, we confess, we're afraid of men. Maybe not, certainly if it was under the threat of hostility, but even just friendships, sometimes you fear to say something because you don't want to be hated or be scolded or be mocked or laughed. Any of us can relate to that? I mean, that, um, but this is under threat, and, and Jesus is saying, do not fear those who kill the body. But I find it just fearing people. I fear men more than I fear God. Any of you can relate to that? That we often find ourselves knowing we should do something or say something or speak up. We don't because we, we fear men than, more than we fear God. But I think of the, uh, the parallel verse there that Luke uh, records in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, in verse 4 and 5, that I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And he gives a more clear description. And after that, having nothing more than that they can do. You know, they can kill you, but that's all they can do. But I will warn you with whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I think of the passage in Psalm 118. It says, the Lord is on my side. And I need to quote this often. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's something I, for all of us, we need to hold to, to dearly. What can man do to me? And, and yet, we're often so paralyzed by, by the fear of man. I think of the wonderful Old Testament illustration you find in, in about three teenage young men. You know their names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You familiar with their names? Maybe it's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You, you know their names uh, as they were, their names were changed. But these three young men it defied when they were told by the most powerful man of the known world at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar, to worship the God who was made in this golden image. And these three young men responded, and it's recorded there in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. It says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That was their penalty for not bowing down. And he will deliver us out of your hand. 
O king, but this is critical, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Oh, if we can get a grasp and a hold of that truth, that we will not. Even if I die, I die. I think of Esther. You know the story of Esther, of, of just this young woman who's called for such a time as this to intervene on behalf of the Jewish peoples. And she says, you know, I'll go to the king and plead on the peop people's behalf, and though it's against the law. And if, you know these words, and if I perish, I perish. That perspective of fearing God more than fearing men is something we need to have a, a, a greater perspective. We need to have that perspective like Isaiah holds that fear not the reproach of man. Isaiah says that in, in chapter 51 that I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? That's what man is. But it's so, it's so easy to just succumb to the fear of man, of what they can do to us, even the government, or, you know, some enemy that we either conjure up in our own mind or we read the news and we go, oh, we're going to be persecuted, we're going to be put down. And we, we get overwhelmed by fear. But Jesus' words there, it's so critical to understand that whom should... Whom shall I fear? It's not just do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But it says, rather, second half, verse 28, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we first consider just the futility of fearing man, but more importantly, the worth of fearing God. Rather, fear Him. That's Jesus' exhortation. Rather, fear Him. Rather means, you know, Jesus is declaring that there's something more valuable to consider. Fear and being afraid and timid is, this, you know, is a, it's the same word there. Is we, we think of fear as being timid and shy, and, um, but fear also has a sense of being in awe, of being terrified, of being you know, just overwhelmed. That's how we often look at others sometimes that, I can't do that before my boss. I can't do that before whomever it is, even family members. I can't talk to dad like this. Or, you know, you, we can be overwhelmed by fear. But Jesus says, rather fear him. Have this more healthier fear of the one who's much more bigger, stronger, more frightening in other words, our fear of man should not be greater than the fear of God. And Jesus gets right to the point there, that fear him. And why? And you may ask that question, why should I fear God more? And I want to give four worthy realities to fear God here. It's not there in your outline if you're kind of looking at that. I, I put that, so you can take notes or you can just listen to this later on. But I have four realities. First of all, the realities of God's judgment upon men. It says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
You know, Jesus uses the word destroy. The word apolemy, it means to ruin. It means to destroy. It means to perish. And, And God's judgment here is not only physically, but it's spiritually as well. The word soul means the eternal spirit that we all possess. And Jesus' statement is one one who is able to judge both soul and body. And hell proves that point that our body and his soul are going to live beyond this life. Whom shall we fear? Whom shall we fear? We fear him. And it's important to see this because It's not Satan who has the power or authority to destroy body and soul in hell. Only Jesus has the key to death and Hades. We know that because John records that in Revelation 1. That is why Jesus says, fear him and him alone. You you see, when you properly fear God, you need not fear anyone or anything else. Let me quote there in Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, in God's judgment, people are not sent to hell, or nor do they voluntarily go and say, yeah, I'm just going to go with my friends and, and party there, you know. No, what the Bible says is, is that they are thrown. They are cast down. The idea is you're being forced there. I mean, you are thrown in there. That's why I think of Psalm 51 when David, when he calls and and cries out in repentance, he says, do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord. I don't want to be thrown away, discarded, useless, worthless, hopeless. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the realities of God's judgment upon man, but the realities, my second point is the realities of hell. It says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. What is hell? It's a good question. It's a literal place of torment and destruction. The word used there for hell is called Gehenna. And it's used 12 times there in the New Testament. And it refers to the Valley of Hinnom. It's just south of the Jerusalem walls where, where dead criminals were thrown, thrown in the garbage heap, in the junk pile. It's like the junkyard, even worse, because it was thrown there to be burned. In ancient times, too, there were wicked wicked kings, and you read this, where wicked kings practiced child sacrifices, and they, they threw them in this valley of Hinnom. And so that's the word Jesus uses, is Gehenna. You know, there are other words used in the Bible to describe about the fate of those who die. Sheol, the place of the dead, means cut off from the living. Or, and that's used 65 times there in, in the scriptures. Or Hades, that's a temporal place of suffering to hell. Or the abyss, the pit, or Tartarus. But this morning we're focusing on Gehenna. 
This is how scriptures defines or depicts hell. I already read of hell being described as, as the lake of fire, the fiery furnace, the unquenchable fire. But Jesus says here in Matthew 8, in verse 12, he says, it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25 says that, Jesus says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, one translator noted that the gnashing of teeth best describes a person who's screaming and saying, I hate this! I want out! The realities of God's judgment upon men, the realities of hell. But it gets worse. The realities of eternity. What do I mean by eternally? Eternal means never ending, constant, consciously aware of one's agony. The Apostle John writes there about the fate of unbelievers in Revelation 14. You can't, you can't, do, this, you can't do this without a little bit of passion, with, with a lot of tears. When you think about sharing about hell, it's, it's hard. Revelation 14, John says, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. You know, Jesus describes hell in Mark 9, 48, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Even in the Old Testament, even Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, describes it as, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, the realities of God's judgment upon men, the realities of hell, the realities of eternity, but the realities of God's word are true. You ever wonder or hear the expression, all right, that's not fair. fair that's not fair of e eternal punishment. You know, let me note that 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 wrongly assumes that we know the extent of evil done when sinners rebel against the holy God. Why is hell eternal? Because the rejection, not only is God is holy and he's eternal, but the rejection of Christ is rejecting, think of this, rejecting Christ is rejecting the culmination of God's love poured out to us in the fullness of time. That's why when we, we're familiar with this passage, John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, what? Should not what? Should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from this hell. Saved through him, through Christ. You see, if you don't, if you don't believe in hell, you cannot believe in salvation. Since what are we being saved from? The Bible describes salvation in many ways. And it's really sweet when you think about it. We're saved. We're delivered. We're rescued. We're adopted. We're made alive. I think of John, Peter and John there in Acts chapter 4. This was a critical verse personally when I first heard the gospel at the University of Washington, 19 years old. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. John the Baptist tells us that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? But the wrath of God abides on him. See, th throughout the scriptures, it's described. The Apostle Paul, I've been thinking on this passage a lot. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, when we, are, when we deny hell, we are denying God's authoritative word. Think about that. You know, when we deny hell and say, I, I don't want to believe, stop, Art. I don't want to even hear this anymore. Or I don't want to choose to believe what the scriptures reveals. You, you see what we, when we deny God's authoritative word, essentially we're taking the words from his book that God has revealed. And at the last chapter of this Bible, John writes that, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So be careful. I know, humanly speaking, and I, I, I say it with passion and compassion, is that I don't want to believe this, but this is what the word of God reveals. And there is a sense of, if I don't speak this truth, if we don't speak this truth, it's what he has revealed, then what I'm, I'm doing is I, I'm taking it away. I, I'm kind of in denial. And, and that's why that quote of, of all the teachings in the Bible, Jesus himself has the most to say about eternal punishment. It's pretty sobering because we often depict Jesus as, a, as kind, sweet. You know, he's always loving. And that's, those are all true. But he's a God of judgment as well. And if we don't get that perspective clear, 
we can really um, lose perspective. I think of Jesus' words in, in Luke 16, that man's heart is so dead um, that if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We have to understand that, that people don't want to hear this and, and they're not able to hear. And so you may be thinking, Art, this, man, this message is so discouraging, depressing. I, I, stop. And, but then you're asking, what should I do? What do I do now? And, and I really want to jump into the application. So what do I do? You begin by praying. And I say be proactive in praying to pray. Whom shall I fear? You, you know, just asking God, God, whom shall I fear? I confess I fear men before I fear you. And pray that God will... Do, will develop within you a heart of compassion. Why do I say that? Because you too were in that same predicament of unbelief. Each one of us in this room, no matter if you grew up in a Christian home, you grew up here at Foothill Bible Church, you grew up with the same condition of unbelief, but God showed mercy in your life. And so pray that you, God will give you a heart of compassion to those who reject this message. And then pray that as you pray, you're depending on God. God, help me. Show me. How, reveal to me. Help me to open my mouth. And I think of, um, I was sharing with the staff earlier this week at Colossians 4. You know, Paul was in prison and he's writing and he's saying, pray for me. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which I ought to speak. Even the Apostle Paul was saying, pray for me that I may know what to speak or whom to speak to. He's in prison and he's asking that. But you know, we too need to have that attitude. God, open a door. Help me to know what to say, what to do. And depend on God in praying. Lead me. Lead me to my neighbor. Open a door to my family. I, I want to, but I'm fear, I fear them. I fear what they're going to say or how they're going to respond or what they're going to do. I understand that. I've been there too, and I struggle with it as well. But I say, pray. Depend on God. Depend on his spirit. I think of just the account there in Acts chapter 4 when they pray together that the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's otherworldly. When God is speaking, filling you with his spirit, he gives you the ability to speak forth his word. So when you are praying proactively, you're trusting on his spirit to fill you and give you that boldness. And you're praying that you're depending on his word. It's only the word of God that can bring forth life. Look at Romans 10 there or, or Psalm 19 that the law is perfect it revives the soul not only do you, we pray be proactive to pray but be pro proactive to proclaim that mean, when I say proclaim that means just go tell, plead be bold, write to someone someone let them know that you care for them 
in a meaningful way. Earlier, as we read there in Matthew 10, Jesus identifies that the, you know, the resistance you often face will be the ones closest to you. And, and, and Matthew 10 there, verse 35 and 36, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. <laughs> you see, proclaiming is difficult. And I, I understand. We all understand. We get it. So you need to, but let me take a, a, a side point here and say that you need to ask yourself this important question. How do I undermine, how do I undermine Jesus' sobering words about hell? You know how we undermine it? If we, we negate or refuse or minimize this reality. And how do we do that? You know, there's a movement in, in the evangelical churches today to believe that that okay Jesus is he is the way but ultimately everyone will get to heaven it's called universalism or the idea that you know that yes Christ we we want to preach Christ but you know ultimately God God wins and God will bring everyone to himself that's a lie from the pit of hell that's a Jesus is saying no there is no other way he is the only way. There's the other belief, and it's a, one that I'm sympathetic to. It's called annihilation. That means that you just cease to exist. Because the thought of hell, of eternal punishment, is, is overwhelming. And there is this one theologian who I had greatly appreciated who came to this conclusion. And I was sympathetic when I read how he arrived there. And I understand because the thought of eternal Judgment is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And annihilation is just the idea that people just cease to exist. I kind of want to believe that too. But that's not what the Scriptures declares. And my foundation and your foundation must be what the Scripture declares, not what you think or what you hope or what you want to see. It's what the Scripture declares. And my encouragement to you is you only present what the Scripture declares. I can't pronounce to somebody that you're going to hell, or you know, that's not my role. God has declared. I don't. I am not the judge. I can't read any person's heart in this room. Neither my, not even my own. I can only declare what the scriptures declare. And so we need to ask, whom shall I fear? You know, another another point I wanted to say about just um, of of just. Asking ourselves, do we undermine Jesus' sobering words? It's to do nothing. You don't share. Do nothing. Don't warn. Don't pray. I tell you, I, I plead with you. I would say after church, go to the book of Hebrews and read chapter 10, verse 26 on, and be sobered by God's word. There is a, there is a judgment to come. And... Don't, you know, we've been entrusted, we who understand God's redemptive plan in Christ. It's a tremendous privilege, but there is a certain responsibility that bears on us that we, it's, it's like Isaiah says, it's a dread. It's like God is holy and I, I want, yes, here am I, send me, but it's a certain, certain dread of, 
I have a responsibility. And I'm saying to you, and I'm pleading with each of you, there is a certain responsibility you hold because you know the truth. You know the word of God. And not to do anything, not to pray, not to proclaim. God, help us from our unbelief, from fearing men more than we fear God. Again, whom do I fear? You know, we need to develop a true perspective of what, what is reality. The doctrine of hell is critical because it reminds us what is essential. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's why we place a heavy emphasis here on missions, on outreach, and evangelism, and just supporting not only the missionaries, the work of campus ministry, Awana, hiding God's word in our hearts. They serve in, as ministry extensions of Foothill Bible Church, but we need to continually remind ourselves that sharing the gospel to unbelievers will not, listen to this, it will not occur in heaven. You know, you've heard this before from me, that worship will be better, fellowship will be sweeter, everything will be better in heaven. But there will never be an opportunity because there is only one life. And then comes the judgment. This is our opportunity. This is our, our only opportunity to make Christ known to those who are now in unbelief. So I, I declare and I want to encourage you to be proactive to pray, proactive to proclaim. Third is to participate in communion. And we'll do that in a few minutes. Why? Why do we practice communion? We do it the first Sunday of the month because it lends a proper perspective of life and how God has shown mercy to each of us as sinners. You know, all of us, all of us deserve hell. But he rescued us. He delivered us. Someone asked me, All right, what, you're going to be preaching on, on, on hell? I mean, why? And I said, you know, it's two weeks before Easter. And oftentimes, I confess this, that sometimes Easter is one of those things that comes like, you, you know, when Christmas comes, you're months ahead planning and preparing and looking forward. Easter comes and it kind of comes and goes. But for us as followers of Christ, Easter is the, ought to be the greatest day we celebrate because we celebrate Christ conquering sin and death and Satan through his resurrection. And, and yet, it's easy to forget that. But coming back to communion, when we participate it just reminds us that, once again, we have this one privilege to recall and remember. And it lends real perspective that I celebrate what Christ has done in view of where I was headed for, where you and I were all headed for. But God delivered us in Christ. And that's why participating in communion is is a celebration for sure, but it's also the proclamation, the proclamation that he has delivered us from hell. Let me close with an, a, a closing illustration. 
And, and that is, um, several years ago, I, um, I was talking to one, a missionary friend, not promised, but another missionary friend in Papua New Guinea, who shared about how he was able to translate the scriptures to this certain people group. And, and the, they were, the people responded in faith and, and uh, they were understanding more of God's redemptive plan. And the tribal leaders were saying, brother, man, this is so wonderful. This is so good. Now, how long have you had this message? And he said, well, um, you know, I, we, I've had it for some time. No, but, but from where you come from? You know, you come from that faraway place. Uh, you call it America. You know, how long have you had this wonderful message? And the missionary said, for a number of years? You mean, you mean where you come from? You, you've, had this, you've had this news in your language for how many years? Why didn't you come earlier? Why didn't you, if you believe this message, why didn't you send out people to come and bring this wonderful message to rescue us? When the missionary shared that, I, I, that was an impactful moment. And I, I have thought about God's grace, gracious hand. Yes, I believe God is the one. He does. He, he uses means and the, the timing. And I understand God's sovereign election. But I think about the tremendous privilege we have. And we have yet a responsibility as well. Let me close in prayer here. Father, whom shall I fear? I think of the words, once again, of Isaiah. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Father, we ask that you would grant us a, a greater reverence and fear of you and less of men in this world. Help us, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.